And I'm afraid there's too much influence in our society that makes God's word, certain ones foreign to the believer, or certain commandments that are foreign. And my question here is this morning, or my proposal is, if, if, if God's word is foreign to us, his commandments, God must be foreign to us also, right? Is that fair to say that? blessed to be here with my family today. Thanks for inviting us. Have you ever heard a story of an old order Amish preacher speaking to someone and totally changing the course of their life? Well, that's part of my testimony. So I'm blessed to share my testimony, my life's journey with you this morning, but I'm sure there's many inspiring testimonies here this morning. That would be a real blessing to hear. Nevertheless, I'm glad to do this do that this morning. I was born in 1983 in an Amish home in Mercersburg, Pennsylvania. My family was one of the four Amish families that endeavored to start an Amish community in Mercersburg. About the time I was born, my mom's dad committed suicide. This brought a lot of stress in my family. My dad put the blame on his mother-in-law. For me, there are still a lot of unanswered questions about my grandfather's suicide. I did hear from a few different sources that he felt like he was failing some of his younger children. By 1991, the three other Amish families had relocated to other Amish communities. Now our family was the only Amish family in Mercersburg. This created more stress in our family. We couldn't believe our eyes when we saw a horse and buggy pull in our lane one day. John and Esther Christner from the Midwest had had joined the Horse and Buggy River Brethren Church, which I know some of you all are familiar with the Horse and Buggy River Brethren. There's no longer any Horse and Buggy River Brethren in, in like Franklin County. Uh, at that time, the Horse and, River, Horse and Buggy River Brethren were made up of all elderly people, perhaps upper 60s, 70s, 80s, and some even lived to be over 100 years old, which John Christner had a family of younger children. He joined that horse and buggy group and moved to the Mercersburg area. They became very close friends of our family. Danny and Ruth Byers from the River Brethren background along with John Christner's family, we started a school together, which was a real blessing. John Christner's Christian character left an impression on me. Um, One occasion that I remember was my brothers and I were talking to John Christner and we were telling him of a neighbor that we had that had problems going to the bars on the weekends and driving home drunk. And he got too many DUIs, lost his driver's license, ended up in the county jail. And we were telling John Christner, good for him. He got what he deserved. And John Christner just kindly told us that he feels sorry for our neighbor, that we should pray for him. And kind of challenged us a little bit with our attitude towards our neighbor. Just different things about John Christner left a real impression on me as a as a child. Um, after about a year, the Christner family moved back to Kansas that night. I cried. I missed their oldest son, Franklin. He was my age. As a young boy growing up, I always desired to become a Christian someday. There's the picture on the screen there. That's, uh, that's a picture that was actually t- taken by a guy named Chris Lopez. He was actually our school teacher for a while. The boy on the black pony, that's my brother Enos. He's two years older than me. 
The boy with the gray pony, that's my brother John. He's five years older than me. The boy ducking under the fence is me. I'm the good boy. You're not supposed to pose for people when they take your pictures. In fact, probably earlier that year, living in Mercersburg, we didn't have any Amish, so we were driving up 75 to uh, Spring Run area where there was Amish. We were going to church there. On the way home one time, we are getting bored in the back of the buggy, and we'd always have these cars come behind us, and people wave, and we'd wave back. And so one time, these older folks were coming up. The lady had a camera out the side of her car and was snapping pictures, and we were waving. So we got a good hard spanking for that one when we got home. <laughs> so there's a, I've proved for my dad I was trying to be a good boy that time. So, so yeah, anyway, as a young boy, I always desired to be a Christian. You can see that, right? I'm trying to be a good boy. But at about the age of 12, along with my older brothers, country music, tobacco, and even liquor was becoming part of our lives. When I was 14, I was at my first beer party. All this brought guilt, which was followed by anger, and arguments with my dad became more frequent. Looking back, I would mark this as a very fragile time in our family. One time, one of my, well, I'll just stop there. So you see the picture there. Uh, I guess to your right, that's me, and then my brother John, my brother Enos, then a fellow named Marvin, and then Scott. Uh, that was actually after, right after a beer party. Well, the next day, we're actually out catching pigeons that night, and we're at Scott's house, and his mom took a picture of us. And In fact, Scott there, uh, he didn't grow up going to church, um, but God, at this time, God was really working in his life. I remember that evening, we were catching pigeons, and he was talking to us boys, and and we really had a lot of respect for him. He was telling us how God is working in his life, and he just had some different stories. I guess he, he faced a lot of real challenging things in life, uh, just from the rough life he lived. And one night he was just out praying out in the field all by himself, just thinking there must be a God somewhere that cares about him. And so God was coming through to him, and I, I'm still somewhat in touch with him, and I'm really blessed with with that testimony that came from him. Anyway, um, so, yeah, it was a downhill. Our lives were going downhill over that time. Um, so one time, my older sister talked to us boys, and she told us she feels sorry for Dad, and we need to learn to respect him more because we, we just weren't listening. We were, yeah, I mean, things weren't, like, totally out of control. My dad would always seem like my dad would always win. You know, he would always have certain things that he would use uh, to usually get us to comply. But one evening, my sister had this story. She was upstairs. It was after dark. It was, chores were done. It's time for bed. And Dad finished up things in the barn, and she saw him walk in from the barn with this storm lantern. I guess you all know what a storm lantern is. It has a little container in the bottom where you put the kerosene in it, and a globe, a wick, and then your wire-like handle. So he was walking in from the barn with that, and I guess he was walking very slow, and his head was hanging. It was a low time in our family, and she just saw him. She's like, she, she, something was telling her he's very discouraged, and so she was talking to us and trying to get us to listen better, not put so much stress on him. So then the next picture here is, I call it a torture chamber. So what's a torture chamber? That's something, what we named our torture chamber. There's a lot of difficult things that took, that's in our cow stable in Mercersburg there. That's a picture I took probably two years ago. Um, but on those windows, those metal brackets coming out, my dad started hanging leather straps on there. He, you know, he thought, us boys are getting out of hand. I have to get stricter and whip harder. 
So he'd use the, those leather straps, and of course we're getting older, so there'd always be these arguments, this tug of war. You know, Dad would be trying to get us back in the corner there at the barn with the, what we called the torture chamber. We'd be arguing, and he'd usually, over time, he would usually win. We, Dad was to be feared. Um, so anyway, so I mean, sometimes there'd be whippings like really difficult, like you know, to the to the point I've had like swollen arms, even to the point of bleeding and swollen back. Like I bent down to pick something up and. My back was so swollen it was hard to bend over to pick things up. Well, um, you know, obviously there was a lot of stress. And so one Sunday, there was an argument that erupted between my dad and I. And he actually grabbed me, threw me on the floor, and punched me in the face with, with his fist, which today he, he obviously denies doing that. And my face ended up being swollen and black and blue eyes, swollen lips, and bloody face. What well, happened? The evidence of that lasted for quite a while. And uh, so we'd have our neighbors or people in the community stop by, and different ones would be like, you know, Elon, what happened? What, what's wrong with what happened to your face? Well, the first ones, the first two or three that asked me that question, I was scared to answer. But my brother Enos would pipe up and say, Dad, beat him up. You know, and so as time went on, I felt more relaxed, just tell people what happened. Well, that had some bad consequences. One morning after chores were in the house, except dad was still outside, and somebody mentioned that there's a car coming in the lane. So we all went to the window and looked out, and this nice vehicle comes in the lane, parks in front of the barn. Dad comes out of the barn, this well-dressed man and woman come out of the vehicle. And they talk for quite a while, and eventually dad comes to the house, and he's very angry. He's like, Elam, who did you tell that I punched you in the face with my fists? Well, he's interrogated me for a while, very angry. So I went outside, and so the, the, there was a fellow and a lady there, and, and the lady started asking me questions, and I was answering, did your dad punch you in the face with his fist? I said, yes, he did. Did he whip you till you bled? Yes, he did. Well, dad got very angry, and he started interrogating them and asking them, who called you? And, you know, you're here to take away my children. Well, after a while, the fellow steps forward, tells dad, Mr. Peachy, we're not here to take your family from from you, They're, they were from the Child and Youth Services in Chambersburg on Franklin Farm Lane. So they're not from the state there. I guess they're a, more of a local run or private run or whatever organization. But he told my dad, if, if you don't comply with us, we're gonna have to turn this over to the state and you will lose your children. Well, I really shook up my dad, so he really complied. And, and, but my dad still told them he, that I was lying, which, where's the evidence? <laughs> like, I'm not gonna try to prove anything. Um, Anyway, so then they had a second visit and asked questions. My dad, he quit. A lot of things changed, you know, as far as the torture chamber and different things like that. Uh, my dad quit using his leather straps, and so he was really shook up. He was really scared of what was happening, but he still denied ever hitting me in the face with his, with his fists. Anyway, so he had a visit to the office and somehow settled that, and that became a piece of history. But nevertheless, that really shook up my dad, and in the meantime, us boys are you know, drifting, we're changing, and, you know, he's having a harder time, you know, getting us to listen and stuff. But things, anyway, and our founders, any, anyway, our lives kept on going down, downward. Um, anyway, so we had a lot of English, a lot of connections that were not a good influence. We had a lot of English connections that weren't a good influence. And some people are like, well, what, what, what are the English? Well, I'm speaking from an Amish standpoint. The English, the Amish use German in church, speak Pennsylvania Dutch in their home, 
and everyday life. So the neighbors that are, don't speak Pennsylvania Dutch or German, the Amish call it English. They just speak English, right? So that's just real easy. That's our English neighbors over there, whatever. But anyway, a lot of these, a number of these connections we had, we had a few neighbors that were bad influence, and through our neighbors, we made more connections. And anyway, for me, I was personally scared where I was headed. In one way, I felt trapped, but on the other hand, I liked my friends and doing things with them. So we'd sneak out at night when Dad was in bed sleeping, and that's how we got our social life, I guess. Uh, but I was still, I was scared. There was things kept getting, you know, going the wrong direction, even like marijuana. The first time somebody, I was probably 14, you know, first fella tried to get me to smoke some marijuana, and I was scared. I was like, no. Anyway, so I finally yielded, and after a while, I was like, well, that was kind of a neat experience, and then the second time was easier. I only did it twice. Thankful for that. Finally, when the announcement came in 1998 that we were moving to Seneca County, New York, which Seneca County is in the Finger Lakes of New York, and the Amish noticed the Romulus uh, settlement. Anyway, with that announcement, I, I felt, felt like, wow, maybe this is my way out. So I f felt hopeful of a new start. Many times I wish our family was a normal Amish family living in an Amish community. Since that wasn't a reality, my brothers and I kept justifying ourselves. Since Dad doesn't provide Amish friends, we will make friends with our English neighbors. So the move to New York finally came in 19, May of 1999. It was a very difficult time. I was almost 16 years old at that time. Unfortunately, by that time, my dad couldn't do anything right for us boys, and that's a real picture of my dad. So I have to, first I have to let you all know, any pictures I have from my relatives or my family is actually pretty precious because we didn't have cameras, we didn't go and get family pictures taken and stuff like that. That actually came off the internet, surprisingly. <laughs> my, and no, I didn't ask my dad where it comes from. I don't know if he knows it exists online or not, but my dad has a goes to Ithaca Farmer's Market in New York and sells his grass-fed longhorn beef and produce and stuff like that there. Anyway, by, by this time, you know, it's, you know, at the age of 16, it seemed like Dad couldn't do anything right, and we accused my dad of trying to run from Y2K. And all that conspiracy talk was going on at that time. You know, the world was going to crash, and there's going to be robbers and thieves, and you know, everything sounded dark and scary, which... You know, I'm sure that had an influence on my dad, but also the social workers had shown up, and we, my brothers and I were, you know, hanging out with too many English, and so my dad probably thought it's time for a change. So, anyway, then um, we were making all our plans to move to New York. We had cattle to haul to New York, we had horses to haul into New York, and farm equipment, but we had one special animal that my dad didn't care for. And it was our border collie dog named Lassie. And that was actually a tool that my dad would use sometimes. If we wouldn't comply or say we're sorry, he would say, okay, we're going to tie up Lassie till you say you're sorry or till you comply with, uh, you know, whatever he wanted us to do. And, of course, we felt very sorry for Lassie. She'd go out to the field with us. We'd be working the fields, spend the whole day in the fields, killing mice and killing snakes and groundhogs and all kinds of stuff. So when Lassie was tied up in the barn, you know, we were out in the fields working without her. That didn't seem right. And, we come back home to the farm, and she'd be wagging her tail in the barn, and you know she was offended that she was tied up, and we felt sorry for her. So eventually, we'd tell Dad, "Well, I'm sorry, I talked to you, or whatever we would do." And then Lassie could be let loose. Well, there was no talk, you know, of how we're going to get Lassie to New York. So we were afraid that Dad had other plans for Lassie. Well, the morning of the move, we're in the barn wrapping things up, and 
here, Dad's looking out the lane. You know, we look out. What's he looking at? Where's a car coming in the lane? Dad, then Dad was like, where's Lassie? Okay, well, we knew what was going on, so an argument erupted again, you know, and what are you going to do? Then this car pulls up beside the barn, and Lassie hops in the back seat and closes the door, and that's the last time I ever seen Lassie. What I was, to me, I was very upset, and it was, I was, yeah, I was very, very upset about that. I felt like running to the woods and hiding and all that, but that didn't happen. Um, anyway, leaving the farm behind and all that, it was, it was a very, to me, it was an emotional time. It was a very sobering or sad, quiet time, and that's a picture of, of uh, the farmhouse. Of course, not the way it looked, looked when we lived there. That's more a recent picture. Um, so we had things loaded up and headed, headed for New York. We had a, like a four-door truck with a gooseneck trailer that I, I rode in the backseat of one truck with my mom and then my older brother, John, uh, sat up in the front beside the truck driver, and we're headed for New York. And John, he's not in a good mood. By then, he, there, his future wife lived in Dry Run area, Path Valley. He, he wanted to get married to her, so he didn't want to go the whole way to New York and have that distance between him and her. Well, he was in a bad mood. And he already was, had joined the Amish, was baptized, and so you better comply with the rules, and his Amish and Path Valley are really strict. But on the way to New York, he was, he was very upset, and he starts playing with the radio. Well, I don't know if you know anything about the Amish, but that's very forbidden. I mean, that's... John would get excommunicated or whatever. It'd be very, very bad. And my mom was like, John, keep your hand off that radio. Uh, he kept on playing, switching from station to station. And I was like, wow, my world is crumbling in here. Even, even though I, we had a little Walkman radios in Hay Barn, I would have never dreamed of doing such a thing right in front of my, my mom. And he was enlisting, and I just broke down and started bawling. You know? I, I totally lost my emotions. My mom was trying to comfort me, saying, oh, you're almost 16. We're headed to an Amish community. Maybe you can have your own horse and buggy, but it's not listening. Anyway, but today I'm very thankful for the move to New York. I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for that move, just to break all those relationships from Mercersburg and put the five hours between me and those old connections. After New York, I told myself I'll never drink again, I'll never smoke again, none of those kind of things. So it was, it was a world I was getting sucked into that I did not want. Anyway, so after New York, uh, now we're in an Amish community, and soon after that we get to go to a barn raising. Wow, that's a good experience and interesting. And so in one day, here we have a big, this family had actually moved from St. Mary's, Maryland to New York, and the foundation was in for this big barn, or, uh, dairy barn. And in one day, the Amish erected a barn. It was like, I was really amazed, and it was a very, very, to me, it was a very good experience. But towards the end of the day, I noticed my brother Enos, which he always talked a lot. His mouth would go 100 miles an hour. And I saw him talking to a fella, when I say older man, maybe in his 50s, off in the distance. I thought, oh, I'll go over and see what he's talking about. So he's there talking and talking and talking, really going on. And this fellow with black hair, black beard, and kind of a rough-looking face is listening. And here Enos is telling all our bad stuff about our family. I'm so embarrassed. Yeah, what do I do? This fellow, oh, yeah, gruff, kind of a gruff voice, but friendly fellow. And then, oh, it is your brother. And so it turns out he's an Amish preacher. His name is Henry Byler. And I was so baffled. Enos would do such an awful thing, so humiliated. Anyway, but with that visit that my brother had with his Amish preacher, now he goes and tells the other preachers, and they're starting to ask some questions and trying to figure this family out that moved in. In their, into their community. So that same, it's probably about the same year, I don't think it was too long later, 
Um, here, things kind of, more things were sort of surfacing, and these Amish preachers were like, well, we need to have a meeting with this family, help them solve their family problems. Well, all of my siblings from Pennsylvania, everybody was supposed to come to New York, and we all sat in this living room with all these Amish preachers. I think there's probably seven of them that came to visit. Well, my siblings from Pennsylvania, they were like, oh, they, don't, they don't know who these preachers are. They think they're going to stay where they're safe in Pennsylvania. Anyway, so it's this whole row of preachers. Well, I was like, this is different. I never had this before. So one by one, they all start had their little sermon for us and what it takes for a family to function, the dad, the mom, the children, how everything's supposed to work. And it took a while for all seven of them to have their little talk. And then finally, the, the, the bishop at that time, his name was Sammy J. Sammy J. Stolsius. He's a little short fellow with white hair and white beard. He's like, well, Mr. Easy Peachy, do you have anything to say? They call, Amish called my dad Easy. Ezra was his name. My dad was, I, don't, I don't think that was my dad's happiest day. I don't think he was too excited about this preacher visitor thing. No, he didn't have anything to say. So if dad doesn't say anything, anybody else have any questions? And everything was totally quiet. So finally, it's like they had their little prayer and... Dismissed the service, and that didn't seem like a success. Well, here comes the story of an Amish preacher now. And I, I want to say these preachers in New York, like Mercersburg was where I grew up at. My parents grew up in Belleville, Pennsylvania. And so as a child, we go to Belleville quite often because that's where our relatives lived. Those preachers, I, never, I don't have memories of really understanding their sermons. Everything was high German, and I don't have any memories of friendly preacher, preachers either. Then Path Valley, those are conser very conservative Amish, and I don't have any memories of understanding of the, any of those sermons. They're all in high German. Um, and I don't have memories of friendly preachers either, I don't think. But New York, it was like the, maybe the second day we were on the farm in New York still getting things situated. There was a little short fellow with white hair and white beard, an Amish fellow, talking to, to my brother John. For a long time, we're like, okay, I wonder what they're talking about. So my brother John comes up to the barn. He's like, wow, that's a friendly... Friendly bishop down there. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's our bishop. Okay. You know, it's a little short fellow with white hair and white beard. And then also, just throughout the, in New York there, I have to say, there was, a lot of his preachers were like really friendly. So I just wanted to say that, including the one that talked to me afterwards. His name was uh, Moses Fisher. So afterwards, we're outside, and he was talking to me and trying to help me work through issues with my family struggles and ask me questions. And I just, told him, don't, I just told him it doesn't work for me to be a Christian here. Dad's too mean. He yells at us. He yells at mom. And things aren't working. I've tried to please dad. And, you know, things never work out. Well, I don't remember a lot of the conversation. But one thing I do remember, he told me that God can use you to change your family. And I was really amazed. And that was actually, to be honest with you, I was 16 at that time. Maybe headed towards 16 probably. And I have, yeah, no memory up until that age of ever having anybody really come and talk to me personally like that, you know, asking me questions and working, trying to help me work through things. But, that, but the thought, just the thought that God could use me to change my family really left an impression on me. And it stayed with me for day after day, day after day. And my heart was saying, yes, yes, I want our family to change. I want things to come together where we can function and uh, so it was, it was one evening. We were still milking our cows by hand. I don't know if anybody here has ever seen a, seen a cow milk by hand, but basically you grab hold of those, the udder there and you just squirt the milk out of the teats. I mean, I grew up doing it since a little child, and uh, it's, 
it works. So yeah, scientifically, it works. And it's a sustainable way of living, too. <laughs> anyway, that evening, I was there milking my cow. And it just seemed like what the preacher said to me just kept getting heavier, like, every day. Every day, I couldn't shake it. Like, I'd go to bed with it at night. I'd wake up next morning, just this impression on me that God could use me was just an amazing thought. And that night, for some reason, it was just like things were just coming up to a head. It was just like I was like, getting to the end of my rope. I, I couldn't handle this anymore. So it got so, this feeling came on me so strong that I just felt like I'm going to explode. And just everything just started letting loose. And I was like, and I was about ready to start shedding some tears and, you know, just breaking down and weeping. And, but I was like, we're all, everybody, my whole family's in the barn. Everybody else is around here milking a cow. And if they'd see me cry they think I might have some major problems. So I quickly, I couldn't finish the cow. It was too strong. I mean, I was looking like faster yet and trying to beat this feeling inside of me, but I was losing the race. So I quickly ran, dumped the milk in the milk tank, and ran up to the hay barn, and I just cried out to God. And I just wept before the Lord and just prayed. And I don't remember all my prayers, but I was tell sharing this story with a, with a very conservative Baptist fella. And he kept going back to Romans. Did you understand this? Did you understand the scriptures? There was a lot of theology I had no clue of. Didn't know, didn't, didn't know it existed, but I knew that there was a supernatural power from God that was, I was encountering. That's all I knew. But anyway, so I just, I just felt like my, I mean, I just kept praying and crying. Finally, I was like, man, I'm going mental. I got to stop this thing, whatever this feeling is. And next dad's going to wonder what happened to Elam. He's going to be hunting and hollering for me and, you know, and find me in the hay barn and think I'm having a mental breakdown. But finally, I, got, I guess I got my f emotions under control. And, but I, I just want to mention that all these years, the conflict with my dad, the conflict that my older siblings had with my dad, created this view of my dad of this scary monster, this ugly-looking monster, just the sight of him like, oh, he shudder when he walks in the house or whatever. But I came down for, out of the barn that day. And the first person I remember seeing was my dad. And I looked at him. My dad's actually a good-looking person, I thought. Anyway, but I went and talked to my dad then afterwards. I mean, again, I didn't have all this theology figured out. And I told him, I want to obey you. And I might have said, I'm sorry for the way I've talked. And I don't remember what all I said. But my dad still remembers that to this day. And I've, I've brought it up one time. And he acknowledged it, which my dad does. Anyway, that was a big step for my dad to acknowledge it. Um, so then another thing that was coming up uh, in the Amish community, I guess that, that, that must have been in the spring or something. I forget when this all happened. Yeah, it was probably in the spring, that summer or spring, summer, whatever, was the instruction class was going to begin in the Amish community. I don't know if that means anything to you or not, but where young people of a certain age, they joined this instruction class. Every, the Amish only have church every other Sunday. Those older Amish do anyway. So these youth would join this instruction class with the preachers and deacons and bishop, and they would go through these articles of faith and prepare them for baptism. Well, I don't know. After that experience, I just felt like God is so close to me. I just a little pocket testament. I would take it out with me in the field while I'm working the fields with the horses. And when I let the horses rest at the end of the field, I'd go into woods or a fence row. I'd just pray, and I'd read this little pocket testament. And God just spoke to me through his word. And it was a hunger that I never had experienced before. And along with reading God's word, many questions. I had so many questions. And I remember seeing a horse and buggy going down the road. I was like, okay, is that true Christianity? 
I mean, where did that thought come from? I had nobody influencing me. It was just simply reading the Word of God. I just felt like, I'm not, I don't know if I'm seeing in my Amish community what I'm seeing in the Word of God. What I, with that instruction class, I always thought, you know, of course, I'd follow the order that the Amish have set up and not challenge anything. But it really bothered me. I, I mean, there'd be nights I'd lay awake at night and couldn't sleep just battling with the thing, if whether I should join this instruction class, because if I go through this instruction class, get baptized, if I ever leave the Amish, then I get excommunicated. Well, I had a lot of fear, man, I have to say, and finally I caved in. I was like, well, I can start the instruction class, then I still have so many weeks to decide before I ever get baptized. Well, of course, old Sammy J, the bishop, very kind old man, he would always be reading his stuff and talking to the young people, and you know, always had his way of you know, finally I felt like, wow, this Sammy J, he's an old man. He's a, he's a man with wisdom. I don't know if I should question anything he says. Well, finally the day of baptism came. I, I, was, I was really starting to get depressed now. And, of course, the service went like normal. We did our instruction class thing. The church service went like normal. Then at the end of, towards the end of service or whatever, they, they dismissed everybody that wasn't a member of the church. And they want to ask counsel from the members whether all these youth that are about to join the church, be baptized and join the church, if there's anything, any questions there. I remember going outside to the barn. I just felt, I felt like running. I just, this, I don't, I didn't want to go through this baptism thing. I just felt like running across the fields. I was looking at the woods way out across this field. But fear, man, I just gave in. I have to say that night I felt depressed. I, I, I did not feel happy about baptism. This is my story. So anyway, uh, it, it was discouraging. Um, but anyway, after that whole ordeal, I had two brothers actually that left home by then. I had my brother Enos, two years older than me. He, 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 there was a hernia problem, medical problem he had that dad wasn't fixing. And so dad, he gave dad a deadline. You get this thing fixed for me or I'll go and get it fixed. Well, he took off then because my dad didn't meet the, dad didn't meet the deadline. My other brother, John, he was of age and went back to Path Valley to get married. So I was the oldest boy at home on the farm, and so the responsibility of the older, oldest boy was hauling manure. And so you have to ground through a manure spreader with the steel wheels, the horses, pulling the thing. So I, I enjoyed hauling manure. It was fun. Then at the end of the one day, well, there were several breakdowns that took place on a manure spreader. Things, some were my failure, not knowing how to run the thing, and not that it was that complicated, but... Then the others were out of my control, so it was a Peckway manure spreader, so all the parts had to come from Lancaster. And so one breakdown occurred. That was my fault. Dad was upset. We have a lot of manure to haul in this barn. Winter is setting in. And so we had to wait on the part to get there to fix the manure spreader. Then I was out hauling manure, and the web broke, which wasn't my fault. And Dad was mad at me again. I had to fork all the manure off by hand and, and get the parts from Lancaster again. Then another crazy thing I did, it was muddy the one day I was hauling manure, and I parked manure spreader where I always did, but it was muddy in that area. And I did this before, and it always worked, where I'd just tell the horses, get up, and they would pull the manure spreader forward. If that didn't work, I'd pull the manure spreader sideways. And so the one wheel would start turning over here. The other wheel would just snap loose of the frozen dirt. Well, this time was extra muddy, I guess. The mud was caked up around the wheels, so the, it worked. Until all of a sudden, I noticed the wheels... The manure spreader is going over here, but this wheel stops. What happened? I was alarmed. I couldn't believe my eyes. It felt like a, having a bad dream, bad nightmare. I bent the axle on the manure spreader. So my dad was really upset now. I mean, I knew he was going to be very upset. 
And it seemed like my relationship with my dad was deteriorating again. Things were going from, just kept getting worse, and I was getting discouraged. Oh, man, I dreaded going to the house to find my dad. He was on the couch sleeping for some reason. And he should have been out working, right? You're a farmer. So I go in the house, and I tell my dad, I bent the axle in my nurse spreader. He jumped up out of the couch. He's like, you did what? And he was so angry. I was like, oh, discouraging. And anyway, so he really ramped and reeled on me that day. But I don't know. Something snapped in me that time. I was like, when I'm 18, I, I'm, I'm out of here. Sad, sadly. Yeah. Anyway, so I marked the day. I would count the days on a calendar. I was, my heart was set. My mind was set. I'm headed back to Mercersburg. My, you know, I just, I just felt like everything, I was so discouraged with everything. And even though I joined church, I was like, I don't know, like, I had reasoning like, how could hell even be worse than what I'm living in? And I would talk to the Amish preachers a lot, too. And anyway, so I don't know how much counsel necessarily they had. It was sometimes comforting talking to them about the situations. But I, so June 8, 1983 is my birthday. I have June 8, so I'm marking the day June 8. Well, in case I get one day off or mess up somehow, I'm going to make it June 9th. Make sure my dad can't call the police on me. So that night I left, wrote a letter to my dad, just like I called him old man in a letter, things I shouldn't have said, and left it on my pillow. Climbed out the window, out on the porch roof, jumped into a tree, slipped down a tree. Off I went, you know. So anyway, so I'm sure it was very devastating to my dad next morning when he, he went to wake me up to do the chores and there was no response. Of course, what did he find? The letter that I left for him. Anyway, in the meantime, also, um, I had a, my oldest brother, Dan. So there's another picture here. If we could move on to the next one, that silo there. It's a double solid. That's still standing there. So if you ever go on Churchill Road, between what they call church, the Churchill intersection and the Conagachig Creek, if you look back there, you might see a silo back along lane. But um, anyway, so yeah, back to Mercerburg I went then, and and my oldest brother Dan, he was going through a seeking and searching time, working. He was single. He was probably early 30s at this time. Anyway, so he ended up leaving the Amish. So when he heard I was out, he hunted me up. And in my mind, I was not going to get deceived, right? I mean, I, I did the baptism thing. I said the vows. So I was like, either it's hell or being Amish the rest of my life. That's what was in my mind. So if I happen to die while I'm out of the Amish here, I'll probably go to hell. In fact, I was working on a, with a construction crew at that time, setting these pre-poured basement walls, pre-cast systems. And... And I was actually supposed to be the good boy. I thought I'm a bad boy, but on a crew of these rough fellows, I was a good boy. And they would ask me any, if they had any religious questions, it was usually, I was the one they would usually ask. So the one fellow named Joshua, he actually lives in Chambersburg here. He asked me, um, he said, if, if I would die, he was asking me, if I would die right now, would I go to heaven or go to hell? Well, that's a tough one, but I had to be honest. I said, Josh, if you would die right now, you'd go to hell. Really? And as I'm explaining to him why he would go to hell, you do all this bad stuff, and I'm explaining everything to him. Well, he started getting a little offended, and I was like, well, Josh, I would go to hell too if I die. He's like, well, why would you go to hell? Well, I told him I got baptized in the Amish and explained it. I'm excommunicated now, so if I die, I go to hell. So I don't know if that made him feel any better or not. <laughs> but anyway, but in the meantime, but I was not going to get deceived. In my mind, I was not going to get deceived. But here I get a call from my brother Dan. I was like, okay, I, I understand he's getting deceived. He's my oldest brother, single. 
and he supposedly is looking at uh, getting rebaptized and leaving the Amish, getting excommunicated is one really, really bad sin. But if you cross that line of getting rebaptized, you really did it. I mean, you're probably really doomed now. Uh, so that's where my brother Dan was hit, and I was like, oh, he's really deceived. Anyway, so I remember the first time I was with him, he was trying to talk to me about the Lord, and you know, he showed me a picture of his baptism and different things. We're going down the road. I'm like, well, he he's deceived and he doesn't know it, uh, you know. And I'm being a bad boy, and I know that. Anyway, but over over time, if we can show a picture of my brother Dan there, over time, that's him. He was still dressing Amish at the time. That might be on a trip somewhere. But anyway, over time, my, my, my life sort of kept slipping again. Like I told myself I'd never drink again, never do all these kind of things. But it, it seemed like over, let's say, a year, year and a half, I, I started getting discouraged. It's like, what is life about? I'd be driving down the road, and I was going, at the beginning there, actually, Scott Klein had come on the scene, the tall fellow that I told you about, and he was taking me to church. But I wasn't, didn't feel like I was getting much out of church. And so eventually the church had some issues, and we didn't like, some of us didn't like the way they treated Scott, and so we just sort of stopped going to church. And I remember driving down the road, and I was thinking, why ever walk in a church building again? And I just, and I just felt like, unless God does something supernatural, it just seemed like church was becoming foreign to me and not part of my life anymore. But my brother Dan, he kept coming around and kept reminding me of things, and I'd be like, yeah, well, i got to shape up. It'll do a little better here. I think Dan's probably right about certain things. And, but then one night I get a phone call from my sister, and she said Dan's in the hospital, and uh, they don't know if he's going to live or not. And I was shocked, and she, she said there's a surgery that he needs, and, and if he doesn't do it, he's going to die. So I, remember I called him up, and I was like, Dan, you need to do, need to do this surgery. Do the right thing. Well, he, he sounded very weak, and, but he ended up dying then. So I just, he died in Lancaster General Hospital. But beside his hospital bed as he was dying, I mean, I was, I was scared. Like, I was like, if this was me on that bed, I would be so scared. But it seemed like he was so calm. And he had a, lots of variety of different friends, like immigrants from Russia and Ukraine, and then some house church kind of friends, some were friends from charity kind of churches. They were all gathered in that room, and they would sing, and they would pray with him. They'd read scripture. He seemed so peaceful as he was dying but not me. I mean, I was, I don't know. I felt like this would be the worst nightmare could ever happen, me, me dying. Anyway, but then he did die, and, I, and, and these people really reached out to me, and, 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 and I felt like I'm finally meeting some people that I feel like have answers to life. And, and I was very attracted to a lot of these people, and we spent hours just asking questions. Of course, I was faced with the thing of returning to the Amish, and how, how do I handle that? Like, I did this baptism thing. Well, a lot, of the, um, a lot of these people didn't really know if that was so important, but I felt like, well, a lot of them don't really understand because they're maybe not from the Amish, but others, there were some that were from the Amish, but I felt like, well, maybe they're deceived, and I want to get deceived by them. That was my, my thinking pattern. Well, eventually, I came to the conclusion I, I need to keep all my commitments I've ever made in life, and if it's being an Amish, I'll be an Amish till the day I die, but I'll be an Amish, and I'll be a Christian. So that, I went back, I have to keep moving. That only lasted for six months, and I was leaving again. So the evening that I left, I thought, well, I need to go and talk to the bishop about it. Now the bishop was Ben Herzler. The older one had died. Went over to his house. Well, he wasn't at home. Then I went to Benny A's house. Benny A. Stolz was his name. 
And I knocked on his door, it was late, it was after dark, all my chores were finished, and I was on my way out. And Benny A, he was a younger minister, he walks out, and he's, oh, hi, you know. And so we're talking, I was like, oh, I gotta break the news to him. So I told him, Benny, I'm leaving the Amish, or I'm leaving home, or whatever, I'm moving out. Well, he, I mean, the poor fella, he, he just starts sobbing. He's like, Elam, you know, you had such a bad experience being Amish, like, I think you judge the rest of the Amish by your experience, and and I felt like a murderer. I have to be honest with you. I felt like a murderer. So I walked, <clears throat> left that house. Benny A was sitting there, head hanging, just sobbing. And I always liked his preaching. It seemed like he was this kind of bigger fella, but he would, he would cry very easily. And his preaching, you know, he'd always have tears running down his face. And, but anyway, so I moved, from there I moved to Shippensburg then. So soon after moving to Shippensburg, I joined up with a house church, which kind of leads me in a sort of a different part here in my life. Um, the house church lasted for like a total of 10 years, but over the time of this house church, it began one thing, and it seemed like over time it sort of changed. You know, maybe some people left and others came, and you know, kind of what we believed maybe sort of changed a bit. But anyway, we had sort of a diversified people in our midst, but there was, maybe I can just say there's some like from a plain background or like Amish and other sorts of background like that. It seemed like the radio was maybe their source of influence. Like they would listen to these Protestant or evangelical sermons on the radio. And so, so those things came across the pulpit, you know, Sunday after Sunday. And, you know, they started questioning maybe, you know, certain things like modesty type of things or going too far in the political realm and things like that. Well, even, you know, wearing women's head covering and just seemed like things just kept changing over time in our house church. So maybe I'll just share a little story of one morning I shared in church, and my topic was blessing follows obedience. So if we're obedient to God's word, blessing follows. You know, and then I shared two stories of, in my topic of two couples I knew that didn't grow up with the head cut, women's head veiling, and how God convicted them of the head veiling, and how blessing followed that. Well, there was, especially one brother, he really gave me the hairy eye that morning. So I think I might have ignored him a bit and maybe didn't quite look at him, you know, looked at the friendlier faces or whatever. But that brother was really, really upset. And later on, he was really talking about this, that we should never be talking. The women's head veiling has nothing to do with a salvation. It's not a salvation issue. So therefore, we should not be talking about that on a Sunday morning. Well, so we had so much different influence that sort of filtered through our house church that really made me seek and search uh, through, you know, sorting through these things. And I know over that time, and I have to confess this morning, we have Brother David Perso here. I have to confess, there was a period of my life, can I say this, where I sort of had a little bit of reserve on some of your teachings. I was wrong. You were right, okay? So, <laughs> so anyway, I helped build David Perso's, David Deborah's office building. And so over time, I started getting a little more of their literature, and I started opening myself more and more. You know, I, I have to be humble, you know, like, you know, there's other people in God's kingdom that have other, you know, areas, teachings that I need to learn from. Well, through that time, I got a hold of the book, and I would highly recommend, if you haven't read it yet, The Kingdom That Turned the World Upside Down. And I'm not necessarily like a bookworm or a re real reader kind of person, but when I started on that book, I had a hard time laying it down. One night I was up till 2 o'clock in the morning just reading and reading, and I, 
I finally went to bed, but I just felt like I was so hungry for these different truths that I was coming across, things that I felt in my heart that I just felt like, wow, Brother David just had such a way of putting it into perspective in his book. Then another one I would recommend also that was really helped to me was uh, by Dean Taylor, The Anabaptist History. It's actually on CDs and some very, very good teachings there. But so blessing follows obedience. Isn't that the truth? God has in his words so many valuable things. And I'd just like to share a few scriptures here, if I may. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 18. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too mysterious for you, nor is it too far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. And I'm afraid there's too much influence in our society that makes God's word certain ones foreign to the believer or certain commandments that are foreign. And my question here is this morning, or my proposal is, if, if, if God's word is foreign to us, his commandments, God must be foreign to us also, right? Is that fair to say that? <clears throat> then starting verse 14, but the word is very near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. So, blessing follows obedience as we follow the Lord. And here his word is personal to us. So it's combined. God's word is personal to us, and God is personal to us. In verse 17, if your heart turns away so, you do, so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. So, Again, blessing follows obedience. And then another thing that's so simple is you shall know them by their fruit, Matthew 7, 20. So what kind of fruit is, is being brought forth in our land today by the church? So a little simple little thing that came, also came uh, real to me over the uh, course of years is doing the right thing is always the right thing to do. So it sounds very simple, but if every Christian could really get a hold of that, wouldn't that change so many Christian people's lives? Doing the right thing is always the right thing to do. Doing the right thing isn't always the easy thing to do. So if a Christian person or a church or a congregation isn't experiencing God's word in a certain area, it may, may seem so foreign, it may seem so difficult, it may be, seem so far away, so mysterious. All of a sudden, the, maybe the seminaries or the Christian colleges start finding a way to explain that away. That is very dangerous. Matthew 24, verses 11 through 14. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. So, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. What are these false prophets producing? What is it producing in their churches? Well, verse 12 tells us, And because lawlessness will abound. So, first of all, we have our false prophets, and we have that followed by lawlessness. A lawless gospel. And lawlessness will abound, and then what will happen after lawlessness abounds in the church? 
many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And the gospel of this kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Then the end will come. So the true gospel of the kingdom is a witness in the land. People know it when they see it lived out in people's lives. And do they know it when they hear it preached? It's so important that we not only know it, but, it's, but also live it. So it's a witness. So my question is, what we see in our society in America today, is that gospel actually a witness? Or is it just theology that doesn't bear any kind of fruit or holiness in the believer's life? I'm afraid so. I'm afraid that what we see in our land today, that true gospel of the kingdom is under attack. And as soon as anybody desires to actually live for the Lord and God becomes personal, his word becomes personal, we're like, wow, you know, we want to embrace God's word. We want to embrace what he teaches us to do. Immediately, we get attacked by being accused that we're trying to earn our salvation to heaven. We're believing in a works gospel. I'm afraid that's what's, what's, what happens to the true believer when we want to embrace God in a real way. Actually, there's something else I'd like to sh- share with you here, a little gospel track that I wrote. Uh, don't, don't write me off now. <laughs> um, so working through different issues in life, through all these different doctrines and stuff, one morning I woke up, and it's like I had an idea. So I began writing. And I'm not a writer either. So I struggle. I don't know where everybody's at here, but I struggle with so much of our modern-day gospel. We keep hearing this thing, we're sinners saved by grace. We're sinners saved by grace. What, I, mean, what's, I mean, we have these same repeats Sunday after Sunday in these churches. What are people getting? Okay, I'm getting the idea. I'm not a changed person. I'm the same, I was, same as I was before. I, I was a wicked sinner on my way to hell. Now I'm a saved sinner on my way to heaven. I don't know what people, I mean, to me, it's off balance. And I got, anyway, in my mind, I feel like either we're a sinner or we're a saint. Sinners go to hell. Saints go to heaven. Is that simple enough? So the first character there is actually Amish faith. And why, why am I writing this? Because just over the years, I, I hear certain people criticizing the Amish. And I don't see their lives producing anything better than the Amish. And then you also hear me from more conservative Amish side criticizing the evangelicals. It's just that criti- 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 criticizing, nobody's really agreeing or everybody thinks they have a better take on things than the other ones. So I'm just trying to, my idea of writing this out was just trying to bring everything in perspective. So here's a fellow, he's passing out tracts, is what he's doing. So he says, Hi, Omer, are you a sinner or a saint? Then the Amish says, Let me explain the Amish way. We all sin every day, like Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 had been given that thorn in his side to keep him humble. If I would live free from sin, I would get proud. And I've heard an Amish say that. So that's the Amish faith. So he's not Amish. Is he offering anything that we can be free from sin and live a victorious life? Well, I mean, some Amish obviously do and others don't. Then I wrote down the popular North American Christian faith, just a broad term. And then this fellow is giving a gospel tract to Dennis. says, hi, Dennis, are you a sinner or saint? Let me explain, because you have been taught the heresy works gospel. We all sin every day, because it's not of works, as anyone should boast. No one will ever be able to stand before the throne and tell God, I lived a good enough life. 
to get in. We are sinners saved by grace. It's all about grace covering our sin. Even Luther taught it's good that we sin to remind us that we need grace. It's grace, grace, grace all day long. And I've heard, I'm writing actual things down that I've heard people say. Dan, I don't know that much about the Catholics, I guess. It's like, hi, Peter, are you a sinner or a saint? It's a Catholic faith. Let me explain, since you have left the mother church, we all sin every day. That's what the priest is for. So anyway, then I wrote down here, biblical faith. And hi, Leonard, are you a sinner or a saint? Praise the Lord, brother. You don't know how refreshed I am. You don't know how weary I've gotten with Sunday after Sunday having to listen to this seminary gospel. I've been taught this thing my whole life, that grace will cover my sin. I'm finding, like it says in Titus 2, 11 through 15, the biblical view of grace has completely changed my life. Then over here in the far right, I wrote, Religion can offer good things, but it can't offer life. Sin always brings death. Sin is death. Jesus came so we can have life and can have it more abundantly. Jesus is the Lamb of God that has come to take away sin. Jesus and sin are completely opposite. Both cannot live together in us. The reason we, ha we need saved is because we have sin and are sinners. The whole reason Jesus came is that death is working in us. He is not saving us in spite of sin, but because of our sin. To me, that's a huge difference is and I've heard that said, oh, you know, Jesus would save Hitler in, you know, in spite of his sin, you know, in spite of what he did. No, it's not in spite, it's because. That's what Jesus came to do is to deliver us, set us free. So if you all have any corrections on that, uh, feel free to share, share it with me. I have shared it with some people and some were like, uh-uh, well, you know, I've not really gotten a lot of feedback, you know. But, okay, so another one here is Matthew 15. I'm sorry, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So here we have salt, and, and so somehow the salt could become worthless, right? Lose its value. So what is, what is it in the Christian that we would become worthless in the kingdom and I have proposed it to someone here recently that that salt is, is, wor is good works. And as I share it with that person, like, mm, you know, like I could tell he was not really wanting to answer, that, answer me on that one because, you know, it's, it's not a popular thing to do is to share and teach good works, is it? But if we go on down to the end of the verse, uh, it says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So is it safe to say that... The salt, the saltiness is good works in a believer. It's the fruit that would come out of a believer. I, I believe it is. Because what is there left of a Christian if there's not good works coming out? It's just lip service, isn't it? We're saying things, but there's nothing valuable there. It's good for nothing. So I guess, you know, one example would be, would be today I could tell you I'm a roofer. I do roofs. I'm the best roofer in town. I'm a professional and tell you all these great, wonderful things, what a kind of roofer I am. But then, okay, then replace my roof, and I jump up on your roof and make a big mess, and the new roof would leak worse than the old one. Well, you'd be like, his, his work is worthless. And you might even label me as a worthless person, because all the roofs I do all leak. So isn't, can we make a comparison maybe of a Christian? If, if a Christian just has good words, but not a life, it's a worthless thing. It's just throw it out, you know?
Um, anyway, so I guess I've been intrigued by people over the years. How much thought will go into buying a new vehicle or buying a house, all these different things. I mean, people will fly from one end of the United States to the other end to get the vehicle they really want. I mean, they'll spend weeks and months even searching for this certain vehicle. They put so much thought and time into the pros and cons and to get this vehicle that works. Or a roof. They want a good roofer, so they spend time asking others and researching these different roofers to make sure they have a roof that will be lasting and work. So why are we so careful? Put so much thought and energy into temporal things, but when it comes to God's church or the Word of God or God Himself or precious Lord Jesus, there's so much sloppiness there. I don't know, that's the way I feel. I've been kind of frustrated over times with why, you know, we would just keep repeating the same thing and the results are bad. We just keep on this repeat. I mean, if you look at statistics of church attendance, it's a drastic, rapid decline. Not only young people, but also people in their 40s, 50s. You know, there's an increase in decline of church attendance. There's, if there's something there that's valuable, won't people be drawn to it? I guess just a few questions. And I have a burden for the Amish, too. That's where I come from. And I was talking to somebody here recently. This individual is not from an Amish background, but his wife, well, I guess his father-in-law left the Amish and had a large family, and his father-in-law stayed in a conservative church his whole life and almost looked Amish the day he died. Um, but all the siblings, you know, the next generation just all went to the world. And he was telling me that he even has a niece in that family that got married to another woman. And, and he described a lot of these Amish that leave as a ship without a sail, rudder, or anchor, with no direction. And that might sound harsh, but... It's a burden that I have. I'm not saying it critically, but it's a burden that I have for people leaving the Amish. So anyway, that's, I would say that's pretty much my conclusion to my topic. And, and if anybody has any questions, feel free to ask for any comments or anything. I appreciate your testimony, Lord. I actually just recently um, realized that you came from that family of one person. I didn't make a connection figure. <laughs> I heard stories about your, your family a little bit. Just didn't know you okay. the sure. Um, you know, I was I was impressed with the uh, whatever the word is, drama you had in your family growing up, and you have chosen to follow Christ. That that's that's impressive. Mm. I just want to encourage you in that um, everyone has their experience, some, sure. some tougher than others. And um, I think it's important that, you know, God uses situations wherever we come from, whatever background, and gives the opportunity to mm. come to him. That yeah. really impressed me. So just thank you for that. And wish you God bless you and you and your family. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I, I really enjoyed the presentation and, and I agree with what you say. You know, Paul, when he writes to the churches, it's always to the saints in Rome, the saints in Ephesus. He never says to the sinners in the church in Rome. Yeah. I, I mean, um, uh, we have been saved from, from sin, but yeah, we're to walk with with Christ. Not perfectly. Not every day we do sin, we, we get forgiveness. It's an ongoing forgiveness if we're repentant. But uh, we talked to this church about the uh, uh, myth of the false dichotomy 
where you make something look like there's only two possibilities. And people do that with works. They say, well, you know, are your works good enough that you deserve eternal life in heaven? Well, no. None of us is that. Right. But that, but it doesn't mean that, that God doesn't want to see good works, because good works are required. It's Luther who made the term good works a, a bad, it sounded bad. I mean, I, the first thing I noticed when I was reading the early Christians, and it bothered me because I was in an evangelical church at the time, is they talk about good works all the time, like it's something good, and I'm thinking, well, you must not mean what you're saying, and, you know, and it finally opened my eyes that I was getting fed a lot of false things, but... Mm -hmm. uh, no, I had, uh, just between you and I, our, our story, when um, I was new at Shippensburg, someone had told me, uh, you were there just a few weeks when, when we moved there. I don't know if you even remember that. And uh, someone had told me, yeah, Elam said, uh, he thought maybe there was a little bit of hope for Shippensburg, but now that David Berceau was there, there was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't. I, I guarantee you, I've heard stuff like that uh, so many times. That it didn't bother me. In fact, I heard it from a few other people. It seems like every one of them now are good friends of mine. But uh, <laughs> uh, I noticed, you know, because we were at our house a number of times on different building projects, and I thought, I don't think Elon feels that way any, anymore. We never talked about it, but I thought, I, I'm guessing he didn't feel that way yeah. anymore. And, and uh, uh, so. Yeah, thank you for <laughs> for sharing. I never wanted to say anything because I thought he probably doesn't know I know. I know. <laughs> well, now I know, and I guess I would have probably forgotten I said that. <laughs> but again, it didn't hurt my feelings in, in the least. But uh, I didn't know about your background with your father and, and all of that. I, I will say, in terms of Christ, no matter what our background is, I mean, you've got one of the sweetest hearts of anybody I've met. I mean, I've felt that way for years, and. Um, it just shows we don't have to let bitter experiences in our past continue to flavor us. You mm -hmm. know, Christ will give us a new heart if we will surrender that mm -hmm. to Him. And, and uh, uh, we don't have to be chained to whatever bad experiences we've had in our past. Yeah, that's right. And occasionally I meet people <clears throat> that might say something, you know, not bad about you, but it's kind of like, well... Oh you know, maybe a little negative about some of your teachings or whatever. And I always tell them that David Brousseau is a very humble man. And so, and a lot of these people don't even know you, you know, they just hear somebody say something and Deborah's been a very sweet person and very giving person. So I always put a good word out for you all, you know. So yeah, well, it's been a blessing and, and uh, is there anything else? How's your, how's your father respond to you as he sees your life? And the of your life. Well, my dad has, <laughs> yes, he has. My, da my dad's 73 years old, and uh, he's, he's very friendly towards us. First one I left, he was very upset, very angry, and yeah, it was, it was very difficult to work through all that, and yeah, I don't know. I, I, I had a lot of fear of my dad. I was very intimidated by him, so before I got married, I wanted to be the one to tell my dad that, you know, I'm courting and planning on getting married. So that night, I could hardly sleep, and I just prayed a lot that night and just felt like God just touched me and spoke to me. And I was fearful every time I tell myself, when I see my dad, I'm going to be stay calm, not be afraid of him, and speak kindly to him. But just every time I'd see him, I'd just get intimidated, and he'd get angry at me. But God did something in my heart that night before I went to see my dad to tell him I was getting married. And I end up telling my dad, I love you, and I said, I forgive you for you know things that happened. I'm sorry for things I've done. And... 
just cleared things up. Ever since then, he's been very friendly and he's been very accepting of my wife and children. So he's, yeah, so that we're blessed with that.